John 8 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that, we, that she should be stoned. But what do you say? And this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Father, we ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit to give us hearts that are prepared in a way supernaturally by you that we might hear every thought and intent behind what you want for us as we read and study and receive what your spirit would say to us through this passage this morning. Lord, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say. And we pray that you take away the distractions and things that would hold us back from hearing what you want to say to each one of us through this portion of scripture. As always, Lord, we ask that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but that we'd experience the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking directly to our hearts what you want to say to us. So bless your word as we open it together and speak to us, Lord. We ask expectantly in Jesus' wonderful name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what would you say if someone were to ask you is probably one of the best verses in the entire Bible. I'm sure a number of different verses would come to mind, probably maybe some of the more familiar verses we hear quoted a lot, maybe verses that we see at times being held up on placards and football games or on billboards. But I think one of the best verses in the Bible actually in some ways gets overshadowed by the verse that's right before it. And that verse is John 3:17. Everybody knows, most people know, let me say that, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him what shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, it's so familiar, most of us can in some ways quote a portion or all of that verse. But John 3.17, I think, honestly, may be just as good. Sometimes I like it even better because John 3.17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And I think that's really good news that when God sent Jesus into this world, his intention was not to condemn the world for their sin. 
His intention was not to browbeat the world for their sin. His intention was not to make the world feel utterly horrible and deplorable for their sin. When Jesus came into this world, he came into this world, yes, to deal with sin, to address sin, but he came into this world ultimately to spare us from our sin, to save us from our sin, to take away that weight of guilt that rests upon the conscience of every human being. Let's be very honest this morning. The heaviest weight to carry around for any person in this world is not something that you can lift physically with your arms. The heaviest weight for any human being to carry around is guilt in their own conscience over something maybe you have done years and years ago in your life that even maybe still as a Christian this morning, though you understand theologically the concepts of salvation and the blood atonement of Jesus that you still at times wrestle as the devil manipulates your mind and your own consciousness with, with the weight of the guilt of, but that was, oh, that was so dark. That was so wrong. Or maybe just the weight of guilt if you're here this morning and you have never truly entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can polish everything up on the outside, but the reality is there is an anchor that weighs deep inside your soul and there is a battle that you fight within that maybe no one else ever sees and that is the weight of the guilt of your own human conscience that God wired and gave to you, this internal judge, for a good reason. That, that carries the weight, the boat anchor of guilt over something or the reality that you just know that you've done things wrong. And when we do things wrong, there's that internal judge that tells us about it. That's called our conscience. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But that can lead tremendously to people condemning other people. It can lead to us condemning our own selves. And God wants us to know that Jesus was not sent in this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I think this text is probably one of the best living illustrations of that truth's reality, that Jesus was not sent to condemn the world. Jesus came that the world might be saved. Here we find a story that we just read together where Jesus comes into direct contact with people, the text even says it, who are caught in sin. And notice I purposely said the word people. Because the Pharisees and scribes come and they throw this woman down and they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She was caught. We actually, people caught her in her sin. They actually saw it. They walked in. They, they were literally, she was caught. And the reality is it wasn't just one person that was caught in sin. This woman, yes, truthfully was caught in the sin of immorality. But the scribes and the Pharisees, if you read the story more closely and you follow the heart of Jesus, are caught themselves. They're caught in the sin of hypocrisy. They're caught in the sin of cold-heartedness. They're caught in the sin of being deceptive and arrogant and self-righteous. They were actually caught in a little more sin than she was if you add it up. And a lot of times we look at this and the focus is upon the woman, but I see a passage here where we see how Jesus handles when people are caught in sin. Three main observations I want to kind of draw your attention as we just go through these verses in a more abbreviated fashion this morning. Three things I want you to kind of keep in your mind or if you want to jot them down that are observations that we see of how does Jesus handle 
people who are caught in sin. Because that's what we want to think about as we prepare our hearts for communion. We want to be remembering the Lord. Jesus says, do it in remembrance of me. Remember me. Think about me. Me, who I am and what I'm like and what I've done. And I think three things we see here regarding how Jesus handles people caught in sin. First of all, we see that Jesus desires that people realize or recognize their own sin. Jesus desires that people realize and recognize their own sin. These religious leaders, they want to, the Bible says here, accuse Jesus. They want to catch him in his words to try and accuse him. And of course, obviously, they want to accuse and condemn this woman. So they're worried about catching Jesus in a mistake or accusing and exposing this woman's estate. And, and Jesus is trying to say, how about we recognize our own mistakes? How about you realize your own sinful condition and let that be your primary concern? Secondly, we see that Jesus desires to release people from the punishment of their sin. When people are caught in sin, Jesus' heart, again, is not to condemn. The heart of Jesus is to release people from the punishment that our sin does justly deserve. And thirdly, we take note as we look at this passage that Jesus also desires to remove people from their practices of sin or from their practice, particularly maybe of a specific sin. We see that at the end, as Jesus says to her very directly, look, go and sin no more. Jesus wants to remove people, not just from the penalty and punishment of the sin, but he also wants to remove people from a practice of sin via what we call repentance. Jesus said, I didn't come into this world to call the righteous, but sinners. And then he said to repentance. Jesus didn't just come to call sinners. Hey, if you're a sinner, come to Jesus. Well, that's true, but that's only half the gospel. Jesus said, if you're a sinner, recognize it. There's forgiveness available, but he calls sinners to repentance. He wants the sinner to repent, and he's certainly indicating that even with this woman. Now, really, as we look at this text, chapter 7, verse 53 is where the account actually begins. It tells us there that everyone had went to his own house the contrast, chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. What that's referring to there is the story flows with chapter 7. The Feast of Tabernacles has just come to a close. And everyone now, after this, much like our Thanksgiving celebration, they reflected for a whole week on God's greatness and how God preserved them through the wilderness. Chapter 7 records the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated. Everyone now, after that long celebration, goes back to their own house. But it says that Jesus, but Jesus, differently, he went to the Mount of Olives, reminding us again that Jesus didn't have a house to go to. Remember, Jesus, in his humility and his meekness when he lived, king of kings, came in such humility and meekness, Jesus said to people when they wanted to follow him, Lord, we want to follow you, we want to follow you. He said, that's great. But realize, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so Jesus here goes over to what the Bible shows is seemingly one of his sort of favorite places. You know, maybe you have a favorite place that you like to go and get alone with God. Well, the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane seem to be the area where Jesus liked to go and spend time with the Father. It was just across the sort of a valley away from the temple area where he would come back to, verse 2 says, the next morning. So he goes over to spend some time with his Father that evening. And verse 2 says, now early in the morning... 
He, Jesus, came again, came back into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. So, as was very customary, rabbis would do this in the temple precincts in that day. They would come into the temple area, and in the different courtyard areas, they would position themselves somewhere, and they would sit down, and then... People would draw to them, people would come over to them, and they would listen to them. And the rabbis and the teachers in that day, if they had something to share, would sit down and people would assemble around them and they would begin to teach them. So here we see Jesus, as was very much a part of his custom. He loved to share, he loved to speak about the kingdom of God as a teacher. So he goes back into the temple, he positions himself, he sits down. That was customary. They would stand when they would preach or prophesy typically but usually they sat when they would instruct so he humbly sits down a crowd gathers to him and notice just very humbly very simply no fanfare you know jesus just sits there in the temple and whoever comes comes and the people come and they assemble to him and he begins to teach them so we have this scene now where there's jesus he's sitting in the court probably the court of the women and he's teaching a bible study in the temple i think that's a good thing that should be going on in the house of god teaching a Bible study. That's what Jesus did. The primary concern of Jesus was teach the people, explain the things of God to the people. So here's Jesus, picture a Bible study. He's sitting there, probably got a pretty good following. By this point, his popularity has increased and that's why the Pharisees and the scribes are so jealous and upset with Jesus because he was drawing so many people to himself and he was disrupting the religious establishment. And so they were jealous of Jesus. That's why they're always trying to trap him, as we see again in this story here. So Jesus is a, probably a pretty large gathering. And then all of a sudden, verse 3 says, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, remember, the scribes were those who copied the law by hand, and they also would teach and explain. The Pharisees were sort of the hierarchy of the religious establishment of that day. They were the ones who sought to keep the traditions and, and the law of God. So these were the prime religious leaders of the day, and they come barging into this Bible study Jesus is doing in the temple, brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her right in the midst, they said to him, interrupting, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law commanded us that such should be stoned but what do you say and then verse 6 the holy spirit informs us this they said and of course jesus knew this just testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him so picture the scene in your mind here's jesus teaching a bible study and all of a sudden now there's this horrific interruption you can imagine as he's sitting there teaching a bible study people are listening all of a sudden, here comes these religious leaders, like a band of uh, you know, people, no doubt, I'm certain, probably dragging this woman who's probably you know, kicking and, and trying to resist because they're utterly humiliating her, dragging her in. Now, potentially, if they just caught her in the act of adultery, who knows? Potentially, she's all disheveled. She's half-dressed, just trying to keep somewhat dignity as they're now bringing her, which goes to show you a few things here. These religious leaders, they have no interest, it's pretty obvious, in upholding the law, and they really have no interest in honoring God. They have one interest, that's really the trap Jesus and to use this woman as their bait to do that. They come in, they interrupt the Bible study. They publicly humiliate. I mean, you want to talk about degrading. You want to talk about shaming a person. 
You want to talk about cold-hearted, ruthless in the middle of the temple. They just break in, interrupt the Bible study. Imagine if somebody were to do that in, in a church. Throw this woman down in the middle of the floor and publicly expose her sin before everybody else and call for her judgment right there in front of everybody. I mean, you have to envision the scene, the, the tense, the awkward moment this is and, and how horrific this is really what they're doing. They throw her down before Jesus and it says that she was caught in adultery. Now, adultery was a capital crime. The Bible did tell us that in the Old Testament that the law of God said that adultery as well as murder and a few other sinful offenses in the law of God, the law of Moses, was a capital offense. And so they're bringing this to Jesus' attention. Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So they bring this woman now. They throw her down before Jesus and, and expose her. And then they become very intense saying not only what she's done and how they apparently caught her, but they say, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Leviticus 20, they're referring to as well as other passages. But what do you say? Now they think, as verse 6 says, they're accusing, they're testing Jesus. They think they've got one of these catch-22 situations. No matter what he says, He's in trouble and we got him and we're going to sabotage him. We're going to ruin his following. And, and that's all they're really concerned about. And they're just using this woman very cruelly as a part of their little plot and plan here, which is rather unfortunate. And I think that's the case because you notice they bring the woman. Where's the man? It says you stoned the adulterer and the adulteress. Was one of them maybe the man? The whole thing was a setup hey, why don't you go in? You can selfishly get your thrills and then we'll walk in, catch you both and we'll bring her to Jesus. People abuse and use people pretty rudely in this world. And I'm not saying that was the case, but it is. Again, they don't care about upholding the law because if they did, they would have brought the man too. You stoned them both. They both. It takes two to tango. Last time I checked, in adultery, Correct. There's no man involved here. All they care about is the woman. They throw her down, they embarrass her, and they start peppering Jesus. Well, what do you say? Now, see, here's the case. If Jesus said to their question, you know what? No, let her go. This is horrible what you've done. Let her go. If Jesus said, no, let her go, now it appears he doesn't uphold the law of God. He looks like a false prophet, and they're thinking, this can't be the Messiah. He doesn't even uphold the law of God. He would very quickly lose his following. So they think if he says, let her go, he doesn't care. See, he doesn't care about immorality. He's soft on sin. He's condoning adultery. And he doesn't even uphold God's law. No longer, he loses following. The other side is if he says, you know what, you're right. Stoner, executor, right now, let's begin to execute her. Well, if he did that, first of all, now he'd no longer be a friend of sinners. This very compassionate, tender Jesus who seemed to be so compassionate to sinful, failing people would no longer look that way. And secondarily, if he said to executor, somebody would right away run to the Roman authorities and say Jesus was starting an insurrection because hundreds of years before this, the Romans took away the right for Jews to be able to exercise capital punishment. Only the Romans could do that at this point. So if a Jewish rabbi said executor, put her to death, he'd instantly be drug away. That would put an end to his ministry real quick too. So they think, ah, we, we got Jesus. 
Catch 22 here. He is in trouble and, and there's no way he's going to get out of this. They throw this woman down. They launch this question at him, testing him. What do you say, Jesus? And, and they think they've got him in this sort of catch 22 situation. Verse 6 says, though they're trying to accuse Jesus, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. Interesting, the only place we have in the Bible that mentions Jesus writing anything. Jesus stoops down, writes on the ground with his finger. Isn't this also interesting too? Think about when's the last time the finger of God wrote something? The Ten Commandments. Very interesting. Jesus just stoops down as they're pressing him with this question. He begins to write with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So Jesus stoops down. He begins to write on the ground with his finger. Again, people always, what did he write? What did he write? There's whole books. What did he, I know what Jesus wrote there. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote there. We don't know. I mean, I think God wants us at times to think and ponder through his word. Sometimes I think he leaves a little mystery there, so we'll meditate on the word a little bit. Who knows? We're not certain what Jesus wrote there. It is interesting that he bent down. I think part of it is just sort of leaving a pause. It's interesting. Verse 7, they continued asking him. The idea is that he kind of acts like he's not even paying attention as they're accusing this woman and trying to shame her. Which is a good reminder, when you're really trying to make somebody else's sin look really bad, everybody else may be interested in your words, Jesus is probably ignoring you at that moment. Oh, do you know what this person did? Do you know what they did? Do you know what they did? Do you know? And everybody else, oh, really, really? Because people like to hear juicy stuff. And Jesus says, okay, I'll pay attention to you later when you repent of your self-righteousness, when you repent of your critical spirit. Jesus just bends down. He starts to write on the ground. It is interesting. The word write there that is used uh, where it says he bent down and he wrote on the ground. It's catagraphe, which actually is a word. Graphe means to write. The, the other part of the word, compound word, literally means to write against. So we can't be dogmatic, but it is a Greek term that's used here that means to write something against. So did Jesus, because remember they start walking away being convicted afterwards, did Jesus maybe start doodling in the ground and writing the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. And as he's writing the Ten Commandments, all of a sudden these religious leaders are rising, I guess I'm guilty of that one. Or did he write down against them? March 13th, Shlomo Johnson. <laughs> And all the date was needed. And Shlomo went, ooh, yeah, I remember March 13th. That wasn't a good day. I, we don't know. But Jesus here just starts to, he bends down. He gets close to this woman. He just kind of almost sense that he's in love trying to cover the shame and disgrace that she's dealing with. He begins to write on the ground as though he didn't hear him. They keep asking him. Well, and they're probably very frustrated. Well, he's just, what do you say? And now they're kind of looking dumb. You know, they're pressing him for this answer. And he's kind of just taking his time here. <laughs> Are you going to answer us or what? What do you say? And then eventually Jesus raises up and says, verse 7, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now let me say two words there. That is masterful and that is brilliant. 
You're never going to outwit Jesus. They think they've got a perfect question that is unanswerable. He has got to fail. No matter what he says, this or this, we caught him. If he says executor, he loses his following. He gets in big trouble. If, if he says no, let her go, he's soft on sin. He ruins his credibility before the eyes of the people. Jesus instead doesn't answer the way they think he's going to answer. You ever have that happen before? <laughs> Jesus doesn't answer the way you think he's going to answer. But he still says something, just different than what you expected. But he masterfully says, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. What Jesus does there is he upholds the law. He doesn't contradict the law there. The law did say it was a capital crime. So he upholds the law, but at the same time, he does the more important thing in this situation, which is to humble and expose the sin of the religious leaders that just brought her and did this to her and that are trying to catch him in their deceptive little behavior. So this is a beautiful thing. Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 says, the hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterwards the hands of the people. So here's what in essence you have Jesus saying here. Jesus says, okay, since you are so zealous to... Uh, implement and accuse and punish this woman and execute her for her failure since you're so zealous to accuse and punish her let's take this approach whichever one of you standing here right now is not guilty of any sin himself in this whole little scheme whichever one of you here is not guilty of any sin and guilt in this whole process that we have going on in front of us with this little fiasco then how about you, if you indeed were a literal eyewitness, and this is all true and pure in your hearts, how about you be the one to start the execution process? Bang! Oh, no! All of a sudden, people who were plotting and scheming and whose hearts were cold and humiliating her and people who were no doubt perhaps a part of this whole plot and plan to just make this happen so they could use her to bring her to Jesus. They're just abusing this woman to try and catch Jesus. That's the thing they all really, they don't care an ounce about this woman. Look at the way they're treating her. And all of a sudden, as they hear this, Jesus says, look, I'm not saying don't, that, that the law is not true. So Jesus upholds the law, but in a more important way, he causes them to realize and recognize their own sin in this passage here. And again, look, please don't misinterpret this verse. This is a favorite verse of people who you know, want to take and twist the scriptures. The only verse in scripture people want to quote when they don't want people to question them regarding their sin. That's not what Jesus is addressing here. Okay, the Bible as a whole says that we should address sin. There's a time when people should be reproved for their sin or church discipline. I mean, this is like the, the one verse in the backsliders Bible. You know? Hey, he's without sin. Let him cast the first stone. They all know that one. That's not what Jesus is doing. You know, look at the context. He's specifically addressing these religious leaders and he's saying, look, since you're so zealous to execute this woman and punish her, if in this whole matter right here today, there's not something that you're guilty of too, then you start the execution process. That's what he's saying here. And what he does, as I said again, he wants to get them to realize and recognize their own depravity. So he launches that statement, verse 8, and then again he stoops down and he begins to write on the ground again. Did he finish 
going with the list. I don't, but he just, again, he, he pauses, he goes back down. And I love this. Jesus makes this very straightforward statement. And Jesus is the master of just the quiet pause too. You ever notice that he just, you know, he'll say something and then he'll just let it settle. And he just doesn't say anything. He doesn't, no more information needed. One statement, he blows them out of the water. He speaks very directly into their hearts and then he just lets the Spirit of God work in their hearts on what he just said. And Jesus does that. You ever notice sometimes he'll say something and then he don't need to say any more. He'll just let it sit there and he'll just let it ruminate in the heart of a person. You know, Jesus is very wonderful about honestly not having to say a whole lot to get the attention of a person. We usually do that. We've got to keep saying it, keep harping on it, keep reminding it, keep telling. Jesus just says it one time and he says, now I'm going to just be quiet and let the Spirit of God bring conviction to that person's conscience. So he just bends back down. He starts doodling in the sand again there. And verse 9, here's the response now. Then those who heard it, what he had just said, being convicted by their conscience, went away one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. So all of a sudden now, conviction starts to come over the conscience. A sense of, oh, I guess we're just as wrong too for being dishonest, for being deceptive here, for being arrogant and cold-hearted and self-righteous and, and, and dishonoring God by disrupting a Bible study to do such a horrific... And all of a sudden, the conviction of God, Spirit, begins to come over their own hearts as they recognize and realize their own sinfulness rather than trying to accuse Jesus for wrong or accuse this woman for her wrong. They realize they're wrong. And it says as they hear it, what did they hear? They heard the word of God. They heard the voice of the Lord. And that's what brings conviction to a person in their conscience. When they hear the voice of the Lord speak to them. When they hear the word of God, that convicts the conscience. And it says they begin to go out one by one. I don't know, were they already holding stones ready to do it? Did they start is it just like thud, thud? And all of a sudden, one by one, they begin to walk away because of the conviction that comes into their hearts. It says, from the oldest to the last. So the oldest leave first. Why? Because they have the most to be convicted about. <laughs> They've been living the longest. You've got way more to be guilty about. So all of a sudden, one by one, they begin to dismiss themselves. And isn't it interesting here to realize you know, how when a person becomes convicted in their conscience of their own sin how quickly they lose interest or as much interest in accusing and condemning other people. All of a sudden now, the diminishing effect of they're not so interested in accusing other people because they just got convicted of their own sin. And you know, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your own sin and your own sinfulness, it's amazing how that will diminish in your heart the interest in wanting to accuse and condemn other people as much as often we want to. So Jesus now, verse 9, was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus raised himself back up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? So notice there, Jesus deals with this woman regarding her sin directly and privately. Do you see what it says there? He waits till everybody leaves. He waits till it's just him and her. And he privately deals with her with her sin. 
and he directly talks to her. says he waits till it's just him and her alone. And look at the dignity and compassion Jesus treats her with, even amidst a very great failure. I mean, she had done this. This is a, a pretty horrific failure, a moral mistake that's pretty grievous. And yet Jesus says to her, woman. It's the same term he uses when he talks to his mother in John's Gospel earlier. He called it woman. It's a term of dignity. It's a term of respect. He doesn't say to her, homewrecker on your feet. <laughs> Prostitute, stand up. He doesn't do that. He's very compassionate with a really probably corrupt person. But aren't you thankful that though you may be quite corrupt and everybody else may look at you as quite corrupt that Jesus is compassionate with you still and he restores your dignity and he still sees you as a person created in the image of God who just failed and made some mistakes and is going to have the regrets of that for the rest of your life and that he treats you with dignity and compassion he says woman where are those accusers of yours no one here to accuse you has, has no one condemned you she said verse 11 no one Lord and Jesus said to her neither do I condemn you? Go and sin no more. So, again, as Jesus asked this question, interesting, look at it, verse 11, no one Lord. Lord. Seems like her heart was touched in this situation as well because amazing grace will do that to you. And somebody loving her and protecting her and, and, and trying to treat her compassionately in the midst of her failure, it, it probably really softened her heart. I can't believe this man just stood up for me and did this for me and protected me and sought to help me in the midst of this catastrophe. So she says, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says to her two things, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus extends to her pardon and forgiveness because he knows what he's about to do on the cross. Isn't it interesting? Neither do I condemn you. Where are your accusers? Nobody condemned you? Think about it. What did Jesus say? Whoever's without sin, how about you start the execution process? Well, now everybody is left and the only person who has no sin, is standing right there beside her. And that's Jesus. The only one who could legitimately fulfill the very thing he said and begin to judge her and punish her for her sin chose to offer her pardon and forgiveness instead and to extend forgiveness and grace to her and say, neither do I condemn you. I don't, I don't condemn you. I'm not interested in condemning you. Again, as we said earlier, what does Jesus want? Does he want to condemn and punish people? That's not his heart. Jesus wants to release people from the punishment of their sin. That's the heart of Jesus. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, he's able to do that. He's able to release because he took the punishment and the penalty so that he can release us from the punishment of our own sins and mistakes. But notice also Jesus said, go and sin no more. I want you to see that because notice Jesus also desires to remove people from their practice of sin. Jesus was not soft on sin. He's not condoning her sin. He forgives her, he pardons her, but then as he sends her on her way, he says to her, his last words, go now and sin no more. Repent, he's saying. Repent of this. I don't want to just take away the punishment for your sin and see you continue in the practice. He says, no, I, I, I want to see you live differently. Stop this practice. Step away from this. I've pardoned you, but live differently now. Live differently out of gratitude and appreciation. You know, the Bible says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful thing because of what Jesus has done. Condemnation is the fear of punishment that's deserved due to our guilt. 
And the Bible says that if we're in Jesus Christ, we don't have to live in fear serving God. But instead, we can realize, yes, what I did made me guilty, but Jesus has eradicated my guilt. I don't think there's any more wonderful thing to be able to know that Jesus has said to you, I don't condemn you. And this morning I would say this, then why do you condemn yourself? You don't have the right to do that. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus has pardoned you and Jesus has taken away the punishment, don't diminish what he's done for you. If Jesus says, I'm not condemning you and he's the only one that has a right and a reason to condemn you, then there's no reason or right that you even have to condemn yourself. You need to diminish those thoughts and by faith say, Lord, forgive me even for condemning myself and help me to receive your forgiveness. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it speaks to us and says to us and Lord, how it reminds us of your great love. Lord, we ask even this morning as we spend some time now in worship and communion together that your spirit would just soften our hearts in a fresh way and as as we remember you and reflect upon you that you would cause our hearts, Lord, to be overwhelmed again with a fresh realization of your grace and your love and your forgiveness. Oh, Lord, what a wonderful thing that is to know that you can take our guilt away. Lord, we ask, prepare our hearts for this morning and the remainder of our time in Jesus' name. Amen.